Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Were you taught about Empire School? No, hell no. Yeah. Is anyone? It's not on the curriculum. You learn about the Black Death. <laughs> you learn yeah. about feudalism. Tudors, a lot about the Tudors. A lot about the Tudors. You just don't yeah. seem to get onto the empire. It's so odd when you think about it. I've been reliving school history lessons and talking about the empire with Satnam Sanghera. I'm a writer for The Times and I'm also the author of various books, including a memoir, a novel and now Empireland. Satnam's latest book, Empireland, is an attempt to remedy what he sees as a blind spot in our understanding of history, the details and impact of the British Empire. I wasn't really taught anything about colonialism, which is quite strange, I think, because British Empire is not only the biggest thing that happened to Britain, arguably it's the biggest thing that ever happened to the world because it was the biggest empire in human history. And yet I don't think I'm untypical in not having been taught it at school. But talking about Britain's colonial history is like lighting a touch paper. It's still remarkably controversial. I think it's time we stopped our cringing embarrassment about our history, about our traditions and about our culture. We should not apologise for the fact that British children primarily study the history of these islands. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today... Empireland, how imperialism has shaped modern Britain. Gillian Wallabarg is quite a strange place to visit in the 21st century because it's the site of a massacre. The pretty gardens at Gillian Wallabarg became the backdrop for a defining moment in British colonial history. It was the 13th of April. 1919, at about a quarter past five on a Sunday evening. Jolin Wallabarg in Amritsar is a pleasant open space about the size of Trafalgar Square. The Jolin Wallabarg massacre took place in Amritsar, a city in the North Indian state of Punjab and a holy site for the Sikhs. And it's the location where, almost exactly a century ago, General Reginald Dyer stormed in with 50 troops. He'd arrived in the city the day before. And he'd come to squash a supposed uprising against the British. And when he saw a crowd of 15,000 to 20,000 men, women and children there, he thought they were there to resist the Raj. In fact, 
the large crowds were there to celebrate Vesakhi, the annual harvest festival for Punjabis and a major religious event for Sikhs. And Jallianwalabagh is just a, a nice garden near the holy site where you might stay overnight with your family. And so, whereas General Dyer assumed everyone there was on a political protest, lots of people were just there with their families, you know, chilling out in the way they would do now at Vasaki, in the way my family would do now, in the way my own mother has been recently. And so without further warning, he ordered his 50 troops to fire and between 600 and 1,000 innocent people ended up dying. There's bullet holes in the walls and there's a well which is signed saying that some people jumped in to escape the bullets there. But actually what happened after the massacre was even more distressing because martial law was declared and so anyone who was found walking around the city was considered an enemy of the state. There was an alleyway where a British missionary had been attacked and General Dyer made everyone who lived on that road, who walked down it, every Indian, crawl on their hands and knees. People were randomly arrested. They were tortured. They were made to stand in the heat. Some of them were sexually assaulted. The sexual violence was routine in colonial India at that time. Well, it came at a really interesting moment in British and Indian history in that obviously World War I had happened and India had contributed a large number of troops to help win. And I think a lot of Punjabi soldiers fought on the understanding that if they did so, they'd get rewarded. But it was becoming clear by 1919 that far from being rewarded, they were actually having their rights reduced. Did you know about that before you visited? I'd seen Gandhi the movie and there's a depiction of what happens at Jallianwala Bagh in the movie. But I'd been taught nothing about empire at school. I had a GCSE in history but it gave me nothing more than superficial knowledge of the world wars. Many historians have pointed to the Jallianwala Bagh massacre of 1919 as a turning point for British rule in India and a catalyst for independence. For Satnam, visiting the site so many years later was a sobering experience. I think I realised that the way Sikhs were treated in empire at that time, which was a mix of being indulged, but also you know, racially patronised and murdered, was an echo of the way Sikhs were treated in post-war Britain during my lifetime. You know, in some ways, we are a massively indulged model minority in Britain nowadays, you know. We're allowed to wear turbans and motorbikes, and there's talk always about having a special Sikh regiment and so on. But at the same time, you know, we have been historically victims of racism and victims of racial violence. I mean, one of my first memories as a young child in Wolverhampton is of taking shelter in the Sikh temple in Wolverhampton as far-right gangs kind of marauded and threatened our homes. This is where the recent trouble began. The public house behind me, the Bali Mo, is where many of the Indians and Pakistanis in Wolverhampton drink. It's right in the centre of town. And in fact, this pub is owned by an Indian. The history of race relations in Britain has been fraught with tension. Whilst the race riots of the 80s have given way to a more multicultural society, subjects like the British Empire are returning to the political fray again as part of the culture wars. When I began writing Empire Land, I think colonial issues were relatively obscure, but now they're in the news every single day. It's, it's a strange feeling. It's like being a fan of a really obscure rap artist and then suddenly he's number one. <laughs> I guess we've had the toppling of the Colston statue in Bristol recently. 
you've had the Roads Must Fall campaign in Oxford. One of Britain's most prestigious institutions now at the centre of the fierce debate over the country's colonial past. Thousands of people protested outside Oxford University's Oriel College in recent days beneath a statue of Cecil Rhodes. We've had the National Trust investigating, you know, links to slavery and India and colonialism. This week, we've launched a report into the connection between our properties and slavery and colonialism. And I guess I just wanted to take the opportunity to respond to some of the recent criticism, and in particular those people who are, I can understand, concerned that we're becoming an organisation with a political agenda. We have Lawrence Fox objecting to the uh, inclusion of a Sikh in the film 1917. In 1917, they've done it with their Sikh soldier, which is great. I mean, it's brilliant, but you're suddenly aware it's like there were Sikhs fighting in this war. And you're like, OK, you're now diverting me away from uh, the story of what the story is. And I guess all of this is happening in part because of Black Lives Matter in that Black Lives Matter has raised interest in systemic racism and colonial issues. But at the same time as this emergence of anti-colonial feeling, you've got the opposite happening in that you've got a bunch of historians who are putting forward the view that we should be proud of our imperial history. So people like Niall Ferguson and Andrew Roberts and Nigel Bigger, who have not only argued that empire is something to be proud of, but they've sort of created this idea that if you acknowledge that something bad happened in empire, you are somehow being unpatriotic. First of all, uh, if we insist on our heroes being pure, we aren't going to have any. Rhodes was not racist. He didn't hold black Africans in general contempt. He did not view them as biologically inferior. And so you've got two very strong viewpoints clashing. And this is why I think it's making daily headlines. Despite the political battles over Britain's colonial history, some elements of the empire have become an everyday part of our lives. This is, uh, I guess, the lighter end of our legacies in that, you know, a lot of our language, I mean, a lot of our words come from India and Australia and parts of empire. So the word damn, for instance, comes from a word for, you know, an Indian coin. You know, I won't give a dummery is how it started. And then that became damn. The word walkabout comes from indigenous Australians. The expression cooey is a, actually a cry that Australian Aborigines used. The word bungalow, tea caddy, bazaar, shampoo, dam, shore, punch, they're all Indian words. But actually, a lot of our institutions and in our business say liberties of London, you know, a big store in London. That began by selling silks and cashmere shawls from the east in the 19th century. And actually, the, the building of liberties was built from a ship, which was the HMS Hindustan. Shell, as a company, began when Marcus Samuel started selling antiques and importing oriental seashells from the Far East. The word cop, which is, you know, you use it in relation to football grounds, comes from uh, Spion Cop, a hill where British soldiers were picked off during the Boer War. In Wolverhampton, my hometown, you've got the Black Country flag, which features a chain, which were produced for industry, but equally those chains were used to manacle slaves. In the centre of Wolverhampton, you've got a statue of Prince Albert, who helped abolish slavery. You've got the Molyneux Stadium where Wolverhampton Wanderers play and, you know, the Molyneux family had involvement with the Jamaican rum industry and they had a, actually a slave in the UK called George John Scipio Africanus and they educated him. You could go on. The Scouts, you know, the Scouts were originally going to be called the Imperial Scouts and Robert Baden-Powell was only persuaded out of it by his publisher. And the Girl Guides, 
their principles were set out by Robert Baden Powell's sister. And the first handbook was entitled How Girls Can Help to Build Up the Empire. So the empire was everywhere. Really? Yeah. yeah and it's, I just actually, I could go on. I mean, the welfare state arguably was set up as a consequence of the fact that a lot of our population who volunteered to fight in the Boer Wars failed basic physical tests. So there was a view that developed that actually we needed to look after the poor better and, you know, make sure we weren't so feeble compared to the German empire. Uh, fingerprinting was developed originally in India. A lot of the security forces originally tried out their strategies in the colonies in places like Ireland. Yeah, it's kind of everywhere, I think. I mean, gin and tonic became a big thing because the quinine in tonic, you know, was deemed to help against malaria. I could go on forever, to be honest. And yet, when it comes to the actual nuts and bolts of history, what happened, to whom and when, there's something of a knowledge gap. All the research shows that understanding of empire is really low. I mean, Tony Blair, when he was handing back Hong Kong to the Chinese, admits in his biography that he knew barely anything about the imperial history, which is amazing. It is important, in my view, as I was saying today, for Hong Kong that Britain and China have a good, strong relationship for the future. A relationship where we can be frank with each other on issues like the progress in human rights or democracy. I met a columnist on another newspaper who did history at Oxford and he told me that he studied no colonialism at all and he'd had to teach himself as an adult. And um, it's curious, I mean, why are we like this? I think there's lots of complicated reasons for it. It's much easier to understand World War II, which was a six-year event that had a neat beginning and a neat end. And I think imperial history is quite complicated, so we can't get our heads around it. Most of what happened happened out of sight and abroad. There's evidence that a lot of documentation was systematically destroyed after empire. And throughout empire, people who built houses from slave money or from money in India often pretended they hadn't. And I think on top of it all, you also have the issue of Wales and Scotland, who were very much involved in imperialism, but they see themselves as the colonised. So the idea that they might have been involved you know, is not useful for them. They used to say the sun never sets on the British Empire. So just how big was it? It was so large that it covered the equivalent of 94% of the moon's surface. I don't know if that helps. Probably not. Wow. <laughs> Closer to home, when the British Empire was at its territorial peak in the early 1920s, it covered 13.7 million square miles. That represents 24%, almost a quarter, of the Earth's land surface. It was the biggest empire in history, bigger than the Mongols, the Ottomans, and far bigger than the Romans. We went on for between four and five centuries. So much happened. I mean, it's, a lot of it was quite depressing, and there were a lot of massacres, um, a lot of murders. And the hardest thing, if you're not a historian or someone who reads history books, is that there's no consensus. There's no consensus, really, on when it began. There's no consensus on when it ended. Some people say it ended at Suez. In 1956. Some people say it ended when we handed back Hong Kong. In 1997. Some people argue it's still going on, you know. And the start of empire is even more ambiguous. I mean, some people argue it happened when British fishermen started fishing for cod off Newfoundland. Some people say it started with the Irish province of Ulster. Some people say it started with the Caribbean. Some people say it started, you know, in 1757 when Indians lost the Battle of Plassey to the East India Company. 
And some people say it happened in 1858 when the crown took over from the East India Company. There's a lot of ambiguity, so it's hard to understand, and I guess it's hard to teach as well. The East India Company was a critical actor in the British Empire. It was formed to exploit the spice trade. Although it was a precursor to the modern multinational, it operated unlike any other company. It was a law unto itself. It had the power to print its own money and set its own taxes and embark on its own wars on behalf of the national interest. It was a corporation, but it ended up having an army twice the size of the British army. It used slave labour and it transported enslaved people. And he ended up having the power to send people to jail and kill people and so on. And so that's quite a difficult thing to get your head around because there's not an equivalent thing. I mean, in Google, doesn't have an army, you know? Yet. <laughs> yeah, yet. It's quite a hard thing for a modern person to get their head around. Historians mostly agree the British Empire had several phases. The conventional way to talk about empire is that there were two British empires. The first British Empire is said to have run from the 17th century to the 1780s and was founded on the development of sugar plantations in the West Indies and involved large numbers of settlers to the American colonies and the Caribbean. Essentially, the first British Empire was shaped by the endeavours of a number of different companies and private individuals. There was no single authority. But this first British Empire is said to have ended with the American War of Independence. And the second British Empire is seen as a more concerted power grab of India and Africa, and at first dominated by the East India Company. Uh, so I guess 1783 is seen as the point at which the first empire became the second empire. But there are arguments about whether that is the right date. There's actually, there's academics who argue there was a third empire. So again, it can get very complicated very easily. There's literally not a single thing you can say about empire that people don't argue about. So not only does it incorporate some of the most controversial subjects like race and misogyny and so on, it also is a source of the most vicious academic disagreements. We'll have more from Satnam in just a moment. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day. Subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and get one month free. Search for thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Successive education secretaries have looked at changing the national curriculum. Michael Gove, when he held the post, went further. One of the areas of the new curriculum that's been most controversial is history, understandably. People are passionate about the subject. I am myself. But we've made sure that the, the, the history that we'd like to see taught is genuinely inclusive. So for the first time, we've uh, suggested that people know about Nehru, Gandhi, Jinnah, about Nkrumah and Kenyatta, that they know about the, uh, uh, the, the people who fought for independence and liberation at a time when Britain was withdrawing from its empire. I do take your point. Perhaps in the past, the model of education that many of us grew up with was exclusive. But I recognise that students who are growing up today need to be aware of the, the wealth of creativity and also the range of influences on these islands. Michael Gove's changes to the way history is studied in schools were controversial. He wanted students to learn about the British Empire, but critics claimed he only wanted them to learn about the good bits, editing out the rest. There are countries with similarly vicious history and controversial history which have managed to come to a sensible kind of conclusion and to teach it. I mean, New Zealand, for instance, has just introduced a new curriculum where it teaches colonialism, I would say, in a very balanced way. I would say, actually, Germany does it really well too. But I think we're just at the beginning. Because in a way, I suppose there is an argument that a lot of learning history at school is about learning about events in the past, but it's also about learning how to assess history and learning how different interpretations arise. So in a way, it would be perfect territory. Yeah, I mean, the Germans do incredible work and they they do it constantly. I mean, in relation to their, what happened in World War II, I don't know if you've been to Berlin, you'll see these stumble stones where you'll walk out of a house and you'll see something showing, you know, where Jews were dragged to their death, you know, in the pavement. And they also have a really vibrant art scene that tackles Nazism. They have a film scene that tackles Nazism. Police officers in Germany are taught the history of Nazi policing, you know. Politicians talk about it and apologise, whereas we don't, you know. I can't even think of any films recently that we've had about colonialism. 
people don't go there. And we have Jane Austen adaptations, and then we have a lot of war films, and all other British history tends to be left alone. There's a view nowadays that anyone who comments or remarks on bad things that happened in Empire is woke. But you look at the history and you realise people like me are in good company in that there were establishment figures during Empire complaining about the excesses of Empire. You know, the people who complained about things gone too far, including Queen Victoria, you know, Gladstone, you know, a bunch of writers like Saki. And it wasn't a niche thing to complain that Empire had gone too far. And that for me was the biggest surprise because I think there's a view now that actually everyone was into it. Another striking thing when you look back at the history is how little people knew during empire. This argument is said that we've never really understood empire, even when it happened. You know, there was a phase in the late 19th century under Queen Victoria when jingoism was at its height and newspapers like the Mail and the Express appeared, where the public seemed to be really interested in imperialism. But actually, mostly during the four or 500 year history, the British public were disengaged because it was happening elsewhere and they had bigger problems in their own lives in Britain. Abroad, expanding and maintaining the empire often required disturbing levels of violence. For Satnam, it was the treatment of the Aboriginal people in Tasmania, Australia, that shocked him the most. It was a genocide. Essentially, a bunch of Brits went over there and killed them all, you know, sometimes for sport and sometimes just because they were getting in the way of them making the most of the land. And in the end, it was down to literally two were left. And they were kind of made spectacles of and put on display and studied. And it was really, it's really stomach turning what happened with them. I mean, it's bizarre because we don't really hear about that at all. No, we don't. Another thing we don't hear about, I guess. But also, I mean, there's horrific massacres. I mean, Jan Wallabag was pretty awful, but there were many others. There's the Velour Mutiny when, you know, tens or possibly hundreds of Indians were put in a fives court and shot. I can't say it was much fun to focus on these things. And actually, I think that's another reason why empire history is poorly understood, because it's not fun nighttime reading. How far back does the history of migration go from empire into Britain? Well, I was totally blown away by the fact that there were brown people and black people in this country going back to Tudor times. You know, there's a quote from Elizabeth I complaining about how there's too many black people in London. Incredible. The first Bengali boy who was born in the UK was born in 1616, you know, and oh, wow. the, the, the first mosque was opened in 1899. There were blacks in the Tudor courts. You know, there were Asian seamen, Laskars, who had been recruited by the East India Company in all the ports in the UK. There were hundreds of Indian and Chinese women. The Ayers, who had been brought to help the British with their children on the journey back to Britain. The reason there were 60,000 Ugandan Asians suddenly in the UK in the 1970s is because of empire. The reason there were 23,000 Kenyan Asians suddenly in Britain in the 1970s is because of empire. Empire explains why the Somalis are here, the Palestinians, Sikhs, uh, the Nigerians, the Tanzanians. It's the reason why, you know, there are some cities in Britain that are minority white. And I think we do not understand this basic point about Britain. The 1948 Nationality Act basically made the citizens of empire citizens of Britain. And the people who came on the Windrush, they didn't come with jobs in mind. They came to the mother country as citizens. And there's this idea that 
people came and, you know, they had to apply and they were sent back. A lot of our ancestors came as citizens. If people remembered the history better, would there be more acceptance of it? Totally. I mean, in the case of the Sikhs, if we remembered that they fought for the British during the mutiny of 1857, when most Indian ethnic groups rebelled against the British, that's an incredible fact. I think that would have made a huge difference to the Sikh community in Wolverhampton, who were being depicted by Enoch Powell as people who didn't belong here, as people who came here uninvited. I mean, someone is this, a Jamaican poet called Louise Bennett has described multiculturalism as colonising in reverse. And I think that's a good way of viewing it. You mentioned Enoch Powell. Do you think some of those narratives still filter into politics now? You know, if you look at, for example, a lot of the debate around Brexit. Yes, I realise this is very controversial. <laughs> and, uh, you know... Uh, <laughs> well, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to believe that Brexit was inspired by imperial nostalgia. I'm so bored of the subject and I think we need to heal and so on. But... Yeah, I do argue in the book that actually Brexit is about imperial nostalgia in the sense that the reason we couldn't get on with the EU is that we felt like we were rule takers. We were being colonised and that we'd had 500 years beforehand where we told other people what to do. So psychologically, it was one of the many complicated factors that led to the Brexit vote. I, I describe in the book, I pick up examples from Brexiteers where they've talked about our relation with the EU in terms of colonisation because that's the way we view things, because that's who we are. We are the British Empire, you know. It's odd that when you go to India and America, people have a very clear sense of Britain as a country that was once the head of an empire, whereas here we don't. We see ourselves as the country that defeated the Nazis. I think they call it the balance sheet approach to empire, where, which encourages people to see, you know, the events of empire as either good or bad and balance them out. But, you know, what happened in empire is not like a kettle you buy on Amazon that you can give a five-star rating to. It's a very complex history that went on for 500 years. So I think as soon as we get away from that idea that we've got to come to a conclusion, as soon as we say, you know what, it was really complicated. And that's when I think we'll start to have a healthy conversation about empire. How much does it affect life now? I mean, you know, one of the present-day realities of that past is multiculturalism in this country. There's many legacies of empire in our politics, in our wealth, in our psychology, in our museums. But the biggest one, I guess, for me is multiculturalism for the simple reason that the reason you and I are here as brown people is because some British people invaded India several hundred years ago. And I think Britain has long struggled to accept the imperial explanation for its racial diversity. The idea that brown people like us are aliens who arrived without permission, with no link to Britain, to kind of abuse British hospitality has been the defining political narrative of my, of my lifetime. I mean, it was propounded by Enoch Powell in my hometown. It's been spread by a new generation of politicians who continue to paint brown immigrants as kind of sponges. And it found expression recently in the Windrush scandal, which saw British subjects arriving before 1973, being deported. And I guess it's a reality now in my life, I don't know, possibly in yours too, Manveen, in that we get referred to as second-generation immigrants, which, if you study the phrase, doesn't make any sense. How can you be an immigrant if you were born here? I think that gets to the heart of the issue, in that we are in denial for the imperial explanation for why we're a multicultural society. And I think, unfortunately, it's a narrative 
that is so powerful that I absorbed it myself as a brown person in that my parents never really explained why they came here. They just said, oh, your grandparents were here and they were allowed to bring us. And they confirmed this narrative through their behavior. So they never packed away their suitcases. You know, they didn't want to get British passports because they always thought they might be sent back. I had to beg them to get British passports. Extracts of Satnam's book have recently appeared in The Times and The Sunday Times. For those who've read the whole of Empire Land, the book has left an indelible impression. People have written to me saying it enraged them. And I don't want that to be the response. I want people to say it's encouraged them to find out more. But in the end, you've got to be in favour of education. I mean, one of the odd things about the debate, about our dysfunctional debate about empire, is that those people who are nostalgic about empire are not particularly keen on it being taught in schools. And it's like, if you think empire was a great thing, then why don't you want it to be taught? Do you think if you'd known a bit more about empire and, and why your parents and grandparents had ended up here, would it have changed you growing up? Would it have changed your attitude? Absolutely. I just think when it comes to multiculturalism, which is one of the most controversial subjects in British post-war politics, the emphasis is always on the immigrant community to integrate, to learn English. And you know what? They're right. We should integrate. We should learn English. But what is never emphasised is that the host community also has a duty. And in the case of Britain, it has a duty to remember that people are here for a reason, that there are ties going back centuries. Brown people died in their thousands, that they fought in their millions in World War I and World War II, that they came here and helped rebuild Britain after World War II. They weren't here uninvited. There's a long history. And I think if we acknowledge that basic point, we would be a much healthier country. How does the legacy of, of empire still impact communities, you know, whether it's in Wolverhampton or in other parts of the country? Do you think it is something that communities still feel now? Yes, I think it affects different communities in different ways. I mean, it's definitely an issue in Bristol, with Colston being such a live issue. It's an issue in Liverpool. I mean, a city that was created from empire is an issue with our national trust homes, which are at the centre of this culture war about whether we should talk about colonial history or not. It's an issue for people who visit museums, and museums are the heart of our national life. And we've got to accept that they probably wouldn't have existed without imperialism, you know? And I think our exceptionalism, which is informed by our history of British empire, continues to shape our politics. It's not just Brexit. I mean, it's this obsession during the coronavirus crisis with being world beating. I mean, I think that goes back to empire. Actually, what we should aim for is to be averagely competent. But there's this, our politicians <laughs> constantly want to be world beating. And I think it leads to dysfunction. And I think the amnesia about empire, and actually our amnesia about the fact that we were in the 19th century, a willfully white supremacist and occasionally genocidal state, you know, means that we're not having frank conversations about racism. I feel I've written the book that I wish I had at the age of 17, that would have helped me feel like I belong more here. It would have helped me understand this country more. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, 
writer for The Times and author of a new book called Empireland, How Imperialism Has Shaped Modern Britain, Satnam Sangera. You can read more of Satnam's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. Empireland will be out on January the 28th. The producer was Leona Hamid. The executive producer is Poppy Damon and sound design was by Tom Birchall. If you'd like to get in touch about anything you've just heard or anything you'd like to hear on a future episode, then please do email us at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.